Chapter 9 of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter 9 The Gathering of a Storm. Cairo in 1798, as a city wherein to wander, was much safer for the wanderer than was London in that year of grace. It had no Alsatia, such as Whitefriars had been in the days of Nigel, nor Holy Land, such as the Seven Dials was down almost to our own day. It had no criminal class, and its mendicants were then, as now, few, and almost all strangers from elsewhere. The peaceful citizen or stranger could walk through any part of the town by day or night, free from the dangers he would even today encounter if he ventured through some of the slums of the world's metropolis. Cairo is today unchanged from what it was in this respect, save in the infamous quarter of the town devoted to the nightly carnival of vice that European civilization demands, and, under the august protection of consuls-general and all the pomp and glory of diplomatic dignity, obtains. Volney has drawn a sufficiently deplorable picture of the visible poverty of the Cairenes as he saw them in 1783, but it is highly probable that this glaring poverty was to a large extent of the same self-flaunting type so common in India where certain sufficiently well-to-do classes of the people seem by their outward showing to know no mean between ostentatious prodigality and a pretense of poverty. But there was then, in Cairo, a class that gained its uncertain meals from still more uncertain employment, or from the hospitality or charity that in the East so seldom fails. There were, too, some waifs and wastrels, as there will always be in all great cities and towns, until civilization shall have passed its present hobbledy-hoyhood, these two classes suffered much from the total suspension of business in the town, and rendered desperate by the complete failure of all their ordinary means of livelihood, and emboldened by the absence of all authority resulting from the flight of the Mamelukes, and almost all the officials and leading men of the town, broke out in lawless disorder, and, joined by many of those whom the panic stampede had reduced to poverty, began pillaging the deserted houses and mansions of all that was left in them. Bonaparte, being informed of this, at once sent parties of soldiers into the town with the double object of suppressing outrage and robbery and of seizing everything of value that the mamelukes and other fugitives had been forced by the haste of their departure to leave behind them proclamation was also made that whatever had been taken by any person from any of the deserted houses should at once be surrendered to the french and as a warning to those who might be inclined to disobey this command several men who were caught either in the act of stealing or in the possession of stolen property were summarily executed not content with these measures for the recovery and protection of what he no doubt regarded as his lawful booty, Bonaparte is said to have countenanced, if he did not actually order, the infliction of torture with a view to forcing the disclosure of hidden wealth. The prompt and energetic steps taken by the French quickly restored order in the town, and this having been done, Bonaparte began to take in hand the work of introducing civilization, as it was then understood in France, like the common type of reformer and philanthropist, in doing this, he effectually barred the way to the success of his efforts by coupling his professions of friendship for the people with conditions. It was a case of, be my brother, or I will slay you. He was going to render the people forever happy and content beyond their dreams, but they, on their part, must yield the most implicit obedience to all that seemed necessary or advisable to him. They were to have cake and apples like the good children in the nursery tale, but, like them, they must all sit in a row and behave nicely, in the French fashion, which at least was appropriate, since the cakes and apples they were promised were all of the latest fashion from Paris itself. 
it is rather a pitiable picture that the little corporal makes thus playing the part of a glorified bumble with civilization and other fallacious figments for his parochial board and the porridge bowl of the house filled with liberty equality and fraternity to be doled out in duly measured spoonfuls to the hungry and needy poor kyrenes like the hungry oliver they were to take what they got and be thankful and not mutinously set up a standard of their own they were not only to be fed but feasted they were to remain good mohammedans be free in all respects and be most happy and prosperous but they must wear the cockade and shout viva la republique in such french or arabic as they could so as a foretaste of banquet to which they were invited fair words and fine promises were lavishly scattered among them but not without a liberal seasoning of orders warnings and threats for a short time all went well but it was not very long before the people began to think that the seasoning was somewhat out of proportion to the rest of the dish in the time of the bays which within a week seemed to the kyrenes to have grown old and distant the streets of the town had been swept and watered by day and lit by night but like everything else good and useful in those days these things had been done in a manner that left much to be desired as the town settled slowly back to its old round of life if left to themselves the people would undoubtedly have renewed these and others of their ancient customs but these were matters in which french propriety could brook no delay and orders were therefore issued that sweeping watering and lighting should at once be brought into play to this no objection would have been taken had the order stopped there unfortunately it is a virtuous vice of the french to love precision a quality which the egyptian appreciates only when applied to the attainment of grammatical purity in the use of the arabic language but which being otherwise repugnant to his spirit is not to be found in his native dialect or everyday speech or thought and still less in more important matters hence when the french in obedience to their natural impulse fixed times and methods and degrees for the sweepings and waterings and lightings they demanded from the people and enforced the orders by the proclamation of pains and penalties to be inflicted upon defaulters and moreover did all this without consulting any one as to the native customs and recognized conventions applicable to such matters there was much grumbling thus the lighting of the streets by night was ordered on a scale that made it a real grievance for each and every house was commanded to hang out upon its outer wall not a banner but a lamp a prodigality of illumination that the kyrene looked upon as utterly unprofitable very primitive were the lamps available in those days in london itself ladies returning in their chairs at night from balls and routs and not improbably bemoaning the damage done to their attire by drippings from the spluttering candles of the ballroom they had left were lighted on their way by linkmen carrying torches and since even the beau brummels of those days had to put up with such primitive forerunners of the incandescent lights that to-day seem to us as indispensable for comfort it is not surprising that the honest citizen of kyrene when delayed from home until after dark was content to be accompanied by a servant carrying a small rudely made lamp set in a lantern of paper a custom that survives to the present day in the harahs or back streets of the native town though now the lamps used are lit by russian oil and sheltered from the wind in lanterns of austrian glass but when every reputable man who went through the town at night had his lantern-bearer with him there was not much need for the lighting of the streets in a more general way and so the kyrenes had been satisfied to consider a street well lighted if it had a lamp hung out here and there at longer or shorter intervals to serve rather as a beacon than as a light a lamp to every house was to them therefore an absurd extravagance and when householders were further made responsible under penalty of a fine not only for the placing and lighting of the lamps but also for seeing that they were kept alight throughout the night 
this to the french idea most judicious measure became to the cairenes a very real grievance and one that worried and annoyed all classes to provide for the administration of the affairs of the town generally and to act as an intermediary between the french and the people a diwan was constituted similar to that which had already been established at alexandria this consisted of ten sheikhs who appear to have been chosen principally as being those most openly opposed to the mamaluks but on the urgent representations of the leading men that the turks or mamaluks were the only men in the country accustomed to or capable of exercising efficient authority bonaparte very unwillingly appointed three or four mamaluk officials who had remained in the town to different posts and several frenchmen were added nominally to cooperate with but in reality to control the native members of the diwan notwithstanding the assurances thus given to the people that it was the intention of the french to carry on the government with all respect to their religion and customs the merchants and the dealers showed some reluctance to reopening their shops and stores when however the troops mixing freely with the people as we have seen and abstaining from the violence and injustice that it had always been the experience of the townsmen to receive at the hands of the followers of the bays confidence was restored not only was the former trade of the town resumed but shops especially intended for the benefit and service of the french were started meanwhile the expedition having been accompanied by a body of scientific experts who had been instructed to prepare the most detailed and elaborate accounts of everything that could throw light upon the state of the country and its people and the capacity of each for development these men were set to work each with a definite task to fulfil furnished with quarters in the deserted mansions of the fugitive bays they at once commenced the labours which were to give to the world the vast though unhappily incomplete description of egypt which is unquestionably the most marvellous work of the kind ever undertaken of these men it may be said that they represented all that is best and noblest in the french nation and the higher aspirations of the revolution but however eager bonaparte was to restore order in cairo and to promote the scientific commercial and colonizing objects of the expedition his strongest desires and ambitions lay in another direction and he began therefore to prepare for further action that he might do this with the greater ease he resolved upon two steps which tended not a little to diminish the contentment of the people with his rule the first of these was a demand for money presented to the diwan which was instructed to collect the stipulated amount from the whole community christian and jewish as well as moslem to this though not without demur the diwan consented but the announcement of the impost that was to be raised was to the people the betrayal of the cloven hoof and although it was a measure they had been fearing and which had it been imposed upon them immediately after the arrival of the french in the city would have been accepted as a natural exercise of the prerogative of a conqueror was now looked upon as a breach of faith and as such completely destroyed confidence in the fair words and promises of the french the discontent and uneasiness thus occasioned gave birth to open and evident dismay and agitation when the second measure taken by bonaparte was announced from its first building the town had been divided into harahs or quarters districts separated from each other by the run of the streets and by walls and gates these gates it was the custom to close soon after sunset and thereafter no one was allowed to pass from one quarter to another without the permission of the watchmen charged with the care of the gates in thus dividing the town its founders had two main objects in view one by the separation of the inhabitants into a number of clearly defined groups to be able to fix responsibility for crime on a particular group and the other that in the event of a mutiny or rebellion the closing of the gates might serve to isolate the various groups from each other and thus facilitate the work of the government in dealing with them bonaparte however far from thinking the existence of the harahs as contributing to the maintenance of order regarded them as affording dangerous shelter to malcontents 
and resolved to abolish them. Parties of soldiers were therefore set to work to remove the gates. As soon as the people became aware of this, the most alarming rumors were circulated, such as that this was being done to enable the French to carry out a wholesale massacre of the people, either by night or when they should be assembled in the mosques for the special prayers of the Friday noon, which at that time it was the pride, as it still is the duty, of all Muslims to attend. So great was the alarm of the people at this idea that the newly opened shops were closed once more, and business, which had been growing as brisk as it was profitable, was again suspended. But nothing occurring to justify their fears, the alarm passed, and the bazaars, that for the moment had been more or less deserted, again began to fill with life and animation. As was but natural, the arrival of the French had from the first been hailed with delight by the Christian population. Under the Mamelukes, these, whether native or foreign, had suffered from many disabilities, and though rarely openly molested by the Muslims, were at all times subject to the insults and rudenesses of the lower classes. Now, under the protection of the French, they threw off the restraints to which they had so long submitted, and excited the anger of the Muslims by appearing in public in the silk and gold-embroidered costumes that had been forbidden to them under the Mamelukes. Cafés, restaurants, and wine-shops were opened by the Greeks and others, and wine was sold and drunk in public, to the great indignation of the ulema and all the better class of the Muslims. These and other things, of little moment in themselves, became important factors in modifying the feelings of the people towards the French, by marking the change in the relative standing of the followers of the two religions, and by largely discounting the professions of friendship for the Muslim faith, with which Bonaparte endeavored to conciliate the goodwill of the Mohammedans. Many other causes helped to keep the people from settling down quietly under the French. Among these was the constant searching of houses for arms or valuables belonging to the Mamelukes, and the arrest and imprisonment of those suspected or accused of concealing wealth or property of any kind on their behalf. One of these who suffered directly in this way was the wife of Radwan Kachef, who had fled with Ibrahim Bey. This lady had paid a sum of $1,300 to the French as reconciliation money, in consideration of which she had been granted the right to remain in Cairo under French protection. A few days afterwards, a report having reached Bonaparte that her husband had left a quantity of arms and money in her care, a search was made, and some clothing, arms, and other things being found, all the women in the house were arrested, and a fine of four thousand dollars imposed upon the lady as the condition of their release. Had the French been content to seize the arms, no objection would have been taken to their action, but the fine was, in the eyes of all the people, a breach of faith. If thus rigorous with the Mohammedan population, Bonaparte made it plain that he had no intention of unduly favoring the Christians. On the 2nd of August, Nelson, having returned to Alexandria, had, in the famous Battle of the Nile, destroyed the French fleet, and the army in Egypt was thus cut off from all communication with Europe and left entirely dependent upon itself. News of this event having been brought to Cairo, the Muslims were as elated as the French and Christians were depressed. Bonaparte at once instituted a search for the persons who had first made the ill news known, and these proving to be two Syrian Christians and a Muslim, all three were condemned to have their tongues cut out, or pay a heavy fine. This was, in every way, a foolish measure. It had the effect of checking the open discussion of reports unfavorable to the French, who, by adopting this ostrich-like policy, deprived themselves of the only method they had of gauging the tendency of public opinion, and, while they could not thus prevent the dissemination of news or rumors, gave the people a fresh and reasonable grievance, for under even the most tyrannical of the rulers they had previously known, they had been allowed a liberty of speech that it was clear was now to be denied them, and the distrust of the fair words that Bonaparte was so lavish in offering them was still further increased. 
nor did the punishment of the christians impress the mohammedans with any sense of the impartiality that bonaparte intended it to convey for it was regarded as nothing more than the wreaking of his anger at the bad news received upon those who christian or not were according to public opinion guiltless of any real offence it was thus an act such as they were accustomed to expect from the mamelukes and in the eyes of the Kyrenes placed the boasted justice and humanity of the french on the same level as those of the bays as time went on almost every day brought some fresh incident to swell the stream of ill-feeling towards the french that bonaparte in his self-sufficient direction of affairs was creating had he but acted with some little consideration for the wishes of the people and consulted their prejudices it is certain that the storm that was now rapidly approaching would never have arisen but bonaparte was never able to get beyond the nursery policy of cake or cane there was no worse policy open to him neither with cake nor with cane was it possible to persuade or drive the Kyrenes to adopt his views by a ceaseless play of petty tyranny he was able to force from them an unwilling compliance with his demands but every little victory thus gained served to widen the gulf between the two peoples and thus to defeat that which any man of real ability would have seen was the aim that of all others it was the interest of the french to pursue the conciliation of the egyptians while thus blundering along baffling his own desires bonaparte always believing in his own tact and good judgment decided to give his patronage to the annual ceremony of the cutting of the calique or canal that from the time of the pharaohs had been held in cairo in celebration of the flooding of the nile in the old heathen days this had been essentially a festival of thanksgiving to the gods but as the greatest and most popular feast of the year it had survived the conversion of the people to christianity and islam and was kept as a day of merry-making upon which the people gave unrestricted play to their tireless love of gaiety but the moslems were in no mood to join in revelry when bonaparte summoned them to do so and though the french have recorded the occasion as one of unbounded success the fact is that it was far otherwise it was the same with the celebration of the molid or birthday of the prophet that occurred soon after this being in its first inception a religious feast had like the wakes and feasts of the saints of christendom long been accompanied by revelries and rejoicings of a most unsaintly character and was to the moslem population of cairo the great event of the year the pious celebrating it with prayer and praise and the zikrs that would seem to be an islamic adaptation of the ancient worship of the israelites when they sang songs unto the lord with timbrels and harps while others less piously inclined spent the night in carousings and sports but whether pious or otherwise the moslems of cairo had no desire to hold the feast of their prophet under the auspices of the christian invader and the anniversary would have been allowed to pass unnoticed but that the sheikh sadat the recognized head of the family of the descendants of the prophet living in egypt fearing that bonaparte would take the refusal to hold it in bad part gave the order for its celebration and invited the general and his staff to be present so wholly blind to the storm that was gathering and flattering himself that what he deemed a wise combination of firmness and conciliation was gradually building up a strong tower of french influence in the country bonaparte went on from day to day holding out his cakes and cane temptingly or threateningly much as a silly old woman dangles a gaudy trinket or calls for the bogeyman to coax or terrify a restless child for the cakes the egyptians had no appetite whatever and for the cane since they could see no way to escape from its unwelcome favours they were content to pray for an early deliverance from the french and all their abominations some days after the celebration of the molid bonaparte having invited the leading sheikhs to visit him prepared for them what he probably thought would prove an agreeable surprise 
Receiving his guests with the affability he generally displayed, he retired to an adjoining room, and presently returned with a number of tricolour sashes and cockades. With a smile that was meant to be winning and gracious, he put one of these across the shoulder of the Sheikh el-Sharkawi, the president of the Dewan. Flushing red with fury, the Sheikh flung the sash upon the ground. With hurried but soothing words, the interpreter sought to explain that the sash was intended as a mark of honour, that it was one of those worn by the general himself, and added that by wearing it the sheikh would gain increased respect from the army. Yes, replied the sheikhs, but we should be dishonoured in the eyes of God and of our co-religionists. Here was a sudden flood of mutiny indeed, the tricolour emblem of all that was honourable, sacred, flung to the ground as though it were an unclean and unholy thing, not to mention the rough discourtesy to the general. What wonder if Bonaparte, as the histories tell us, was furious and enraged? Was it not exasperating to be taught in this rude manner that the everyday politeness and conciliating manner of those wretched Egyptian sheikhs really had limits, and that there was a point beyond which they would not go, and the humiliation of having offered a favour only to have it rejected with scorn, and that by men whose very lives depended upon his forbearance? Poor Bonaparte! How many things there were in heaven and earth that were not dreamt of in his philosophy! And poor Sharkawi! Quick as was the ready-witted interpreter to interpose his well-meant explanation, I am well convinced that he was not quick enough to forestall the sheikh's audible or inaudible cry for forgiveness for such hasty and unseemly anger. But audible or inaudible, his cry was not to the general, but to the god to whom, as the Muslim believes, anger and hasty speech are abominations. The general, being restrained by no such considerations, and having, we may admit, much more reason to be enraged than the sheikh, broke forth in an angry denunciation of the worthy president of the Diwan, as one entirely unfitted for the high and honourable post he held, and had his wrath increased rather than soothed by the polite endeavours of the sheikhs to pacify him, while at the same time begging him not to press sashes upon them. At length he yielded so far as to withdraw the sashes, but continued to demand the wearing of the cockade, believing, no doubt, like young Easy's nurse, that this, being such a little one, would be a more pardonable offence against outraged propriety. But the sheikhs were as little willing to wear the cockade as they were to put on the sash, reasonably arguing that it was not the size of the emblem, but its meaning and purport that was objectionable. Finally, when the question had been discussed with much good sense and much folly on both sides, it was agreed that the sheikhs should have some day's grace wherein to consider and decide the issue. On the same day proclamation was made throughout the town to the effect that all the people were to put on the cockade and wear it as a sign of submission and amity. A few only consented, but the opposition of the majority was so strong that later in the day the order was withdrawn, with the condition that all who should have any business with the French, or visited their houses or quarters, should don the despised decoration for the occasion. Here, then, the incident ended, but we must not wholly dismiss it without noticing that Gabarty and others of the sheikhs, although they were not willing to wear the French colours, were quite clear in their opinion that doing so was no offence to Muslim law or sentiment. It was simply a silly fad of the French, without any real meaning or sense. Whence it is obvious that what is spoken of as progressive or enlightened thought in Islam has not altogether resulted from the influence of European or Christian civilization, but is the natural product of the freedom of thought inherent in the teaching of the religion. Learning nothing from the experience that would have taught an abler man the weakness and strength of his position, Bonaparte was thus gradually, though wholly unwittingly, driving the people to rebellion, Misreading the passive acceptance or mild protests with which his rapidly succeeding mandates were received, 
he kept on from day to day more hopelessly and more completely widening the gulf already yawning between the two peoples and while daily outraging the egyptians conception of liberty and happiness never ceased to talk of the benefits he was conferring upon them or to wonder at their failure to appreciate all the charm and beauty of the changes he was so anxious to promote under the mamelukes the people had had but three grievances to complain of and one of these the destruction of commerce and trade they only partly if at all attributed to the fault of their rulers the other two were the excessive taxation to which they were subjected and the acts of more or less wanton cruelty and oppression that classes as well as individuals were liable to apart from these things their lives were as free as they could desire they worked or idled came and went and in short did all things as they listed under no great restraint than that of the lenient opinion of their fellows which even when most censorious was still prone to the moslem virtue of forgiveness little by little bonaparte went on encroaching upon these liberties the people had always possessed and prized births marriages and deaths had to be recorded and fees had to be paid to the recording officers those entering the town had to give an account of themselves whence they came and why those who received visitors or strangers in their houses were responsible for them those who wished to travel or leave the town had to provide themselves with passports these and a host of other regulations that to the french seemed but natural and proper parts of the organization of a state were to the egyptians intolerable outrages upon their personal liberty and that nothing should be wanting to make these reforms unpopular each was fitted with a fee of some sort to be paid upon demand with dire pains and penalties for all omissions or defaults of any kind it is difficult for the ordinary englishman or european to form any intelligent or just conception of the feelings of irritation to which these measures gave rise but those who have travelled in russia and have there experienced something of the wrath its passport regulations can arouse in the breast of a free-born briton may perhaps be able to imagine how the imposition of such restrictions by a foreign conqueror in his own house would affect him if he can do this the reader can form some slight idea of the feelings with which the egyptians regarded the reforms they were forced to accept and asked to admire and applaud but it was not their personal grievances that rankled most deeply in the hearts of the people or most surely crushed all possibility of sympathy or friendship between them and their new rulers among the incidents that most strongly affected the people was the execution of syed mohammed kerim the man whom as we have seen bonaparte had left as governor of alexandria accused by the french of corresponding with the mamelukes he was sent up to cairo for such trial as he was to have and was promptly sentenced to pay a heavy fine or in default to suffer death that he was guilty of the offence appears certain and according to all known laws of war he was therefore guilty of a breach of parole and liable to death but the offence that syed karim had committed was in fact nothing more than a technical one since it consisted in his having offered to admit the mamelukes to alexandria while these so far from being in a position to occupy that town had abandoned all attempts to face the french Bonaparte and his army were no doubt present in Egypt as conquerors, but the foe had not only been beaten, but cowed. The people in the country had made the fullest submission, and it was an abuse of terms to pretend that there was the slightest pretext to justify the application of the laws of war. The option of a fine granted to Said Karim shows indeed that Bonaparte recognized this fact, and at the same time proves his utter incapacity to gauge the sentiments of the people or realize their estimate of his actions moreover according to the popular view syed karim was guilty of no offence whatever for his promise of fealty to the french was not made voluntarily and therefore was not binding some looked upon his sentence as a proof that the french were afraid of the return of the mamelukes 
Others held that the charge had been brought simply to provide the French with an excuse for the seizure of the Sayed's property. All their sympathies were therefore with the prisoner, and they were enhanced a thousandfold by the fact that he was a descendant of the Prophet. But Bonaparte, for all his fulsome speeches to the people, cared nothing for their wishes or desires, and it was in vain that the ulema and all who could obtain a hearing pleaded for at least a mitigation of the sentence. Bonaparte would hear no reason. The full fine must be paid at once, or the prisoner must die. But the Sayed was defiant. Of what use, said he, is it that I should pay the fine? If it is my destiny to die, I must die, and no fine can save me. And if it is not my destiny to die, who can slay me? So he died, as one expects such a man to die, openly defying his foes, and Bonaparte had his head carried throughout the town, with written and verbal proclamation that such was the fate that awaited all who conspired against the French, little recking that the lesson he intended this gruesome performance to be was taken by the people in a very different manner to that which he desired, and so far from being a lesson of submission and obedience was one of hatred and vengeance. From the European point of view, it is, of course, impossible to censure Bonaparte for his treatment of Syed Karim. In matters of this kind, European civilization was in those days very little better than the East. It is true that in England, traitors' heads no longer provided the public with an interesting spectacle on Tower Hill, but my Lord Tom Noddy and the smart set of that day highly appreciated the entertainment afforded by the hanging of miserable prisoners sentenced to death for petty thefts, or even for attempting to steal and the bones of highwaymen still hung in chains on the heaths around London, startling unwary nightfarers with their unwelcome rattle. So Bonaparte went blundering on, failing entirely to grasp the situation, and fancying that he was laying the foundations of that great eastern empire of which he dreamed, he was blindly ignorant of, and indifferent to, the one and only means whereby he could succeed, for if it had been possible for him to realize his dream, it could only have been by gaining the adhesion of the Egyptians as his first step. That he could have done this I do not believe, but it was absolutely the only possible road to success open to him, and it was the one that in the futile folly of his overweening confidence in himself and his methods he would not or could not adopt. He might have gone far on the road. Had he left the people at rest, had he respected in fact and deed as in words he professed to do, their prejudices and desires, had he gained as he might have gained the passive, if not active, support of the ulema, had he done these things, nothing but a greatly superior force could have dislodged him from Egypt. But these were the very things that he did not do. As we have seen, instead of giving the people the rest from tyranny and vexations for which they longed, he harassed them infinitely more than the worst of all the rulers that had preceded him. So with the ulema, instead of seeking their friendship in the only way in which it was to be obtained, he mocked them with idle pretenses of respect that were never justified by deeds, and while loudly declaring his respect for Islam and its teaching, ignored both in the most offensive way, and thus not only offended the people, but completely barred himself from the support of the ulema. So keeping his way with dogged will and unbroken faith in his own ability, he was blindly, though surely, swelling the tide of discontent fast rising around him, and soon to birth forth in stormy wrath. End of chapter 9. The Gathering of a Storm. Recording by Graham McMillan. San Diego, California.